0: Book Two, Chapter Five, Part Two of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book Two constance chapter 5 another crime part 2 3 on the dark winter morning when samuel set off to the grand assize constance did not ask his views as to what protection he would adopt against the weather she silently ranged special underclothing and by the warmth of the fire which for days she had kept ablaze in the bedroom samuel silently donned the special underclothing Over that, with particular fastidious care, he put his best suit. Not a word was spoken. Constance and he were not estranged, but the relations between them were in a state of feverish excitation. Samuel had had a cold on his flat chest for weeks, and nothing that Constance could invent would move it. A few days in bed, or even in one room at a uniform temperature, would surely have worked the cure. Samuel, however, would not stay in one room. He would not stay in the house, nor yet in Bursley. He would take his lacerating cough on chilly trains to Stafford. He had no ears for reason. He simply could not listen. He was in a dream. After Christmas a crisis came. Constance grew desperate. It was a battle between her will and his that occurred one night— when Constance, marshalling all her forces, suddenly insisted that he must go out no more until he was cured. In the fight Constance was scarcely recognisable. She deliberately gave way to hysteria. She was no longer soft and gentle. She flung bitterness at him like vitriol. She shrieked like a common shrew. It seems almost incredible that Constance should have gone so far, but she did." She accused him, amid sobs, of putting his cousin before his wife and son, of not caring whether or not she was left a widow as a result of this obstinacy, and she ended by crying passionately that she might as well talk to a post. She might just as well have talked to a post. Samuel answered, quietly and coldly. He told her that it was useless for her to put herself about, as he should act as he thought fit. It was a most extraordinary scene." and quite unique in their annals. Constance was beaten. She accepted the defeat, gradually controlling her sobs, and changing her tone to the tone of the vanquished. She kissed him in bed, kissing the rod, and he gravely kissed her. Henceforward she knew, in practice, what the inevitable, when you have to live with it, may contain, of anguish, wretched and humiliating. Her husband was risking his life— so she was absolutely convinced, and she could do nothing. She had come to the bedrock of Samuel's character. She felt that, for the time being, she had a madman in the house, who could not be treated according to ordinary principles. The continual strain aged her. Her one source of relief was to talk with Cyril. She talked to him without reserve, and the words, "'Your father, your father,' were everlastingly on her complaining tongue. Yes, she was utterly changed.' often she would weep when alone nevertheless she frequently forgot that she had been beaten she had no notion of honourable warfare she was always beginning again always firing under a flag of truce and thus she constituted a very inconvenient opponent samuel was obliged while hardening on the main point to compromise on lesser questions she too could be formidable and when her lips took a certain pose and her eyes glowed he would have put on forty mufflers, had she commanded. Thus it was she who arranged all the details of the supreme journey to Stafford. Samuel was to drive to Nipe, so as to avoid the rigours of the loop-line train from Bursley and the waiting on cold platforms. At Knype, he was to take the express, and to travel first class. After he was dressed on that gas-lit morning, he learnt bit by bit the extent of her elaborate preparations— The breakfast was a special breakfast, and he had to eat it all. Then the cab came, and he saw Amy put hot bricks into it. Constance herself put galoshes over his boots, not because it was damp, but because India rubber keeps the feet warm. Constance herself bandaged his neck, and unbuttoned his waistcoat, and stuck an extra flannel under his dicky. Constance herself warmed his woollen gloves, and enveloped him in his largest overcoat. "'Samuel then saw Cyril getting ready to go out. "'Where are you off?' he demanded. "'He's going with you as far as Nipe, said Constance grimly. "'He'll see you into the train, and then come back here in the cab.' She had sprung this indignity upon him. She glared. Cyril glanced with timid bravado from one to the other. Samuel had to yield. Thus, in the winter darkness, for it was not yet dawn, Samuel set forth to the trial.' escorted by his son. The reverberation of his appalling cough from the cab was the last thing that Constance heard. During most of the day Constance sat in Miss Insull's corner, in the shop. Twenty years ago this very corner had been hers, but now, instead of large millinery boxes enwrapped in brown paper, it was shut off from the rest of the counter by a rich screen of mahogany and ground glass— and within the enclosed space all the apparatus necessary to the activity of Miss Insull had been provided for. However, it remained the coldest part of the whole shop, as Miss Insull's fingers testified. Constance established herself there, more from a desire to do something, to interfere in something, than from a necessity of supervising the shop, though she had said to Samuel that she would keep an eye on the shop. Miss Insull, whose throne was usurped, had to sit by the stove with less important creatures, as she did not like it, and her underlings suffered accordingly. It was a long day. Towards tea-time, just before Cyril was due from school, Mr. Critchlow came surprisingly in. That is to say, his arrival was less of a surprise to Miss Insull and the rest of the staff than to Constance, for he had lately formed an irregular habit of popping in at tea-time to chat with Miss Insull. Mr. Critchlow was still defying time. He kept his long, thin figure perfectly erect. His features had not altered. His hair and beard could not have been whiter than they had been for years past. He wore his long, white apron, and over that a thick reefer jacket. In his long, knotty fingers he carried a copy of the signal. Evidently he had not expected to find the corner occupied by Constance. She was sewing. "'So it's you,' He said in his unpleasant, grating voice, not even glancing at Miss Insull. He had gained the reputation of being the rudest old man in Bursley, but his general demeanour expressed indifference rather than rudeness. It was a manner that said, You've got to take me as I am. I may be a negatist, hard, mean, and convinced, but those who don't like it can lump it. I'm indifferent. He put one elbow on the top of the screen, showing the signal. "'Mr. Critchlow,' said Constance primly. She had acquired Samuel's dislike of him. "'It's begun,' he observed with mysterious glee. "'Has it?' Constance said eagerly. "'Is it in the paper already?' She had been far more disturbed about her husband's health than about the trial of Daniel Povey for murder, but her interest in the trial was, of course, tremendous, and this news that it had actually begun thrilled her. "'Aye!' "'said Mr. Critchlow. "'Didn't you hear signal-boy hollering just now all over the square?' "'No,' said Constance. "'For her, newspapers did not exist. "'She never had the idea of opening one, "'never felt any curiosity which she could not satisfy, "'if she could satisfy it at all, "'without the powerful aid of the press. "'And even on this day it had not occurred to her "'that the signal might be worth opening. "'Aye!' "'repeated Mr. Critchlow. "'Seemingly it began at two o'clock, or thereabouts.' He gave a moment of his attention to a noisy gas-jet, which he carefully lowered. "'What does it say?' "'Nothing yet,' said Mr. Critchlow. And they read the few brief sentences under their big heading, which described the formal commencement of the trial of Daniel Povey for the murder of his wife. "'There was somers said,' he remarked, pushing up his spectacles, that grand jury would alter the charge or summit. He laughed, grimly tolerant of the extreme absurdity. "'Ah!' he added, contemplatively, turning his head to see if the assistants were listening. They were. It would have been too much on such a day to expect a strict adherence to the etiquette of the shop. Constance had been hearing a good deal lately of grand juries, but she had understood nothing— nor had she sought to understand. "'I'm very glad it's come on so soon,' she said. "'In a sense, that is. I was afraid Sam might be kept at Stafford for days. Do you think it will last long?' "'Not it,' said Mr. Critchlow positively. "'There's not in it to spin out.' Then a silence, punctuated by the sound of stitching. Constance would really have preferred not to converse with the old man, but the desire for reassurance, for the calming of her own fears, forced her to speak, though she knew well that Mr. Critchlow was precisely the last man in town to give moral assistance if he thought it was wanted. "'I do hope everything will be all right,' she murmured. "'Everything will be all right,' he said gaily. "'Everything will be all right, only it'll be all wrong for Dan.' "'Whatever do you mean, Mr. Critchlow?' she protested. Nothing, she reflected, could arouse pity in that heart, not even a tragedy like Daniel's. She bit her lip for having spoken. "'Well,' he said in loud tones, frankly addressing the girls round the stove as much as Constance, "'I've met with some rare good arguments this new year, no mistake. There's been some as say that Dan never meant to do it. That's as may be. But if it's a good reason for not hanging—' "'Then there's an end to capital punishment in this country. "'Never meant. <laughs> there's a lot of em as never meant. "'Then I'm told she was a gallivanting woman, "'and no housekeeper, and as often drunk as sober. i would no call to be told that. "'If strangling's a right punishment for a wife "'as spends her time in drinking brandy "'instead of sweeping floors and airing sheets, "'then Dan's safe. "'But I don't seem to see Judge Lindley telling the jury as it is.' I've been a juryman under Judge Linley myself, and know them once, and I don't seem to see him like—' He paused with his mouth open. "'As for all them knobs,' he continued, "'including the rector, as have gone to Stafford to kiss the book and swear that Dan's reputation is second to none, if they could have sworn as Dan wasn't in the house at all that night, if they could have sworn he was in Jericho, there'd have been some sense in their going.' "'But as it is, they had done better to stop at home and mind their business. "'Bless us! Sam wanted me to go!' He laughed again, in the faces of the horrified and angry women. "'I'm surprised at you, Mr. Critchlow! I really am!' Constance exclaimed. And the assistants inarticulately supported her with vague sounds. Miss Insull got up and poked the stove. Every soul in the establishment was loyally convinced that Daniel Povey would be acquitted, and to breathe a doubt on the brightness of this certainty was a hideous crime. The conviction was not within the domain of reason. It was an act of faith, and arguments merely fretted without in the slightest degree disturbing it. "'Ye may be,' Mr. Critchlow gaily concurred. He was very content. Just as he shuffled round to leave the shop, Cyril entered." "'Good afternoon, Mr. Critchlow,' said Cyril, sheepishly polite. Mr. Critchlow gazed hard at the boy, then nodded his head several times rapidly, as though to say, "'Here's another fool in the making, so the generations follow one another.' He made no answer to the salutation, and departed. Cyril ran round to his mother's corner, pitching his bag on to the showroom stairs as he passed them. Taking off his hat, he kissed her, and she unbuttoned his overcoat with her cold hands. "'What's old Methuselah after?' he demanded. "'Hush!' Constance softly corrected him. "'He came in to tell me the trial had started.' "'Oh, I knew that! A boy bought a paper, and I saw it. I say, mother, will father be in the paper?' And then, in a different tone, "'I say, mother, what is there for tea?' When his stomach had learnt exactly what there was for tea— the boy began to show an immense and talkative curiosity in the trial. He would not set himself to his home lessons. "'It's no use, mother,' he said. "'I can't.' They returned to the shop together, and Cyril would go every moment to the door to listen for the cry of a newsboy. Presently he hit upon the idea that perhaps newsboys might be crying the special edition of the signal in the marketplace, in front of the town hall, to the neglect of St. Luke's Square." and nothing would satisfy him that he must go forth and see. He went, without his overcoat, promising to run. The shop waited with a strange anxiety. Cyril had created, by his restless movements to and fro, an atmosphere of strained expectancy. It seemed now as if the whole town stood with beating heart, fearful of tidings, and yet burning to get them. Constance pictured Stafford, which she had never seen, and a court of justice, which she had never seen, and her husband and Daniel in it, and she waited. Cyril ran in. No, he announced breathlessly. Nothing yet. Don't take cold now, you're hot, Constance advised. But he would keep near the door. Soon he ran off again, and perhaps fifteen seconds after he had gone The strident cry of a signal-boy was heard in the distance, faint and indistinct at first, and then clearer and louder. "'There's a paper!' said the apprentice. "'Shh!' said Constance, listening. "'Shh!' echoed Miss Insull. "'Yes, it is,' said Constance. "'Miss Insull, just step out and get a paper. Here's a halfpenny.' The halfpenny passed quickly from one thimbled hand to another. Miss Insull scurried. She came in triumphantly with the sheet, which Constance tremblingly took. Constance could not find the report at first. Miss Insull pointed to it and read, "'Summing up! Lower down! Lower down!' After an absence of thirty-five minutes, the jury found the prisoner guilty of murder with a recommendation to mercy. The judge assumed the black cap and pronounced sentence of death, saying that he would forward the recommendation to the proper quarter.' cyril returned not yet he was saying when he saw the paper lying on the counter his crest fell long after the shop was shut constance and cyril waited in the parlour for the arrival of the master of the house constance was in the blackest despair she saw nothing but death around her misfortunes never come singly why did not samuel come all was ready for him everything that her imagination could suggest in the way of food, remedies, and the means of warmth. Amy was not allowed to go to bed, lest she might be needed. Constance did not even hint that Cyril should go to bed. The dark, dreadful minutes ticked themselves off on the mantelpiece, until only five minutes separated Constance from the moment when she would not know what to do next. It was twenty-five minutes past eleven. If at half-past Samuel did not appear— then he could not come that night, unless the last train from Stafford was inconceivably late. The sound of a carriage. It ceased at the door. Mother and son sprang up. Yes, it was Samuel. She beheld him once more, and the sight of his condition, moral and physical, terrified her. His great strapping son and Amy helped him upstairs. "'Will he ever come down those stairs again?' the thought lanced Constance's heart. The pain was come and gone in a moment, but it had surprised her tranquil common sense, which was naturally opposed to and generally scornful of hysterical fears. As she puffed with her stoutness up the stairs, that bland cheerfulness of hers cost her an immense effort of will. She was profoundly troubled. Great disasters seemed to be slowly approaching her from all quarters. Should she send for the doctor? No— To do so would only be a concession to the panic instinct. She knew exactly what was the matter with Samuel, his severe cough persistently neglected, no more. As she had expressed herself many times to inquirers, he's never been what you might call ill. Nevertheless, as she laid him in bed and posited him, how frail and fragile he looked, and he was so exhausted that he would not even talk about the trial. "'If he's not better tomorrow, I shall send for the doctor,' she said to herself. As for his getting up, she swore she would keep him in bed by force if necessary. 4. The next morning she was glad and proud that she had not yielded to a scare, for he was most strangely and obviously better. He had slept heavily, and she had slept a little. True that Daniel was condemned to death. Leaving Daniel to his fate, she was conscious of joy springing in her heart. "'How absurd to have asked herself, "'Will he ever come down those stairs again?' "'A message reached her from the forgotten shop during the morning "'that Mr. Lawton had called to see Mr. Povey. "'Already Samuel had wanted to arise, but she had forbidden it, "'in the tone of a woman who is dangerous, "'and Samuel had been very reasonable. "'He now said that Mr. Lawton must be asked up. "'She glanced round the bedroom. "'It was done. "'It was faultlessly correct as a sick-chamber.' she agreed to the introduction into it of the man from another sphere and after a preliminary minute she left the two to talk together this visit of young lawton's was a dramatic proof of samuel's importance and of the importance of the matter in hand the august occasion demanded etiquette an etiquette said that a wife should depart from her husband when he had to transact affairs beyond the grasp of a wife the idea of a petition to the home secretary took shape at this interview and before the day was out, it had spread over the town and over the five towns, and it was in the signal. The signal spoke of Daniel Povey as the condemned man, and the phrase startled the whole district into an indignant agitation for his reprieve. The district woke up to the fact that a town councillor, a figure in the world, an honest tradesman of unspotted character, was cooped solitary in a little cell at Stafford, waiting to be hanged by the neck until he was dead. The district determined that this must not, and should not, be. Why, Dan Povey had actually once been chairman of the Bursley Society for the Prosecution of Felons, that Association for Annual Eating and Drinking, whose members humorously called each other felons. Impossible! Monstrous! that an ex-chairman of the felons should be a sentenced criminal! However, there was nothing to fear— No Home Secretary would dare to run counter to the jury's recommendation and the expressed wish of the whole district. Besides, the Home Secretary's nephew was MP for the Knype Division. Of course, a verdict of guilty had been inevitable. Everybody recognised that now. Even Samuel and all the hottest partisans of Daniel Povey recognised it. They talked as if they had always foreseen it, directly contradicting all that they had said on only the previous day without any sense of inconsistency or of shame they took up an absolutely new position the structure of blind faith had once again crumbled at the assault of realities and unhealthy un-english truths the statement of which would have meant ostracism twenty-four hours earlier became suddenly the platitudes of the square and the market-place dispatch was necessary in the affair of the petition for the condemned man had but three sundays But there was delay at the beginning, because neither young Lawton nor any of his colleagues was acquainted with the proper formula of a petition to the Home Secretary for the reprieve of a criminal condemned to death. No such petition had been made in the district within living memory, and at first young Lawton could not get sight or copy of any such petition anywhere, in the five towns or out of them. Of course there must exist a proper formula, and of course that formula and no other could be employed." nobody was bold enough to suggest that young lawton should commence the petition to the most noble the marquis of wellin k c b may it please your lordship and end it and your petitioners will ever pray and insert between those phrases a simple appeal for the reprieve with a statement of reasons no the formula consecrated by tradition must be found and after daniel had arrived a day and a half nearer death it was found A lawyer at Anick had the draft of a petition which had secured for a murderer in Northumberland twenty years' penal servitude instead of sudden death, and on request he lent it to young Lawton. The prime movers in the petition felt that Daniel Povey was now as good as saved. Hundreds of forms were printed to receive signatures, and these forms, together with copies of the petition, were laid on the counters of all the principal shops, not merely in Bursley, but in the other towns. They were also to be found at the offices of the Signal, in railway waiting-rooms, and in the various reading-rooms, and on the second of Daniel's three Sundays they were exposed in the porches of churches and chapels. Chapel-keepers and vergers would come to Samuel, and ask with the heavy inertia of their stupidity, "'About pennons and ink, sir?' These officials had the air of audaciously disturbing the sacrosanct routine of centuries in order to confer a favour. Samuel continued to improve. His cough shook him less, and his appetite increased. Constance allowed him to establish himself in the drawing-room, which was next to the bedroom, and of which the grate was particularly efficient. Here, in an old winter overcoat, he directed the vast affair of the petition, which grew daily to vaster proportions. Samuel dreamt of twenty thousand signatures. Each sheet held twenty signatures— "'and several times a day he counted the sheets. "'The supply of forms actually failed once, "'and Constance herself had to hurry to the printers to order more. "'Samuel was put into a passion by this carelessness of the printers. "'He offered Cyril sixpence for every sheet of signatures which the boy would obtain. "'At first Cyril was too shy to canvass, "'but his father made him blush, and in a few hours Cyril had developed into an eager canvasser. "'One whole day he stayed away from school to canvass.' Altogether he earned over fifteen shillings, quite honestly, except that he got a companion to forge a couple of signatures, with addresses lacking at the end of the last sheet, generously rewarding him with sixpence, the value of the entire sheet. When Samuel had received a thousand sheets with twenty thousand signatures, he set his heart on twenty-five thousand signatures, and he also announced his firm intention of accompanying young Lawton to London with the petition. The petition had, in fact, become one of the most remarkable petitions of modern times. So the signal said. The signal gave a daily account of its progress, and its progress was astonishing. In certain streets every householder had signed it. The first sheets had been reserved for the signatures of members of Parliament, ministers of religion, civic dignities, justices of the peace, etc. These sheets were nobly filled. The aged rector of Bursby signed first of all. After him, the Mayor of Bursley, as was right, then sundry m p s Samuel emerged from the drawing-room. he went into the parlour and later into the shop and No evil consequence followed. His cough was nearly but not quite cured. The weather was extraordinarily mild for the season. He repeated that he should go with the petition to London, and he went. Constance could not validly oppose the journey. She, too, was a little intoxicated by the petition. It weighed considerably over a hundredweight. The crowning signature, that of the MP for knipe, was duly obtained in London, and Samuel's one disappointment was that his hope of twenty-five thousand signatures had fallen short of realisation, by only a few score. The few score could have been got, had not time urgently pressed. He returned from London a man of mark, full of confidence, but his cough was worse again his confidence in the power of public opinion and the inherent virtue of justice might have proved to be well placed had not the home secretary happened to be one of your humane officials the marquis of wellin was celebrated through every stratum of the governing classes for his humane instincts which were continually fighting against his sense of duty Unfortunately, his sense of duty, which he had inherited from several centuries of ancestors, made havoc among his humane instincts on nearly every occasion of conflict. It was reported that he suffered horribly in consequence. Others also suffered, for he was never known to advise a remission of a sentence of flogging. Certain capital sentences he had commuted, but he did not commute Daniel Povey's. He could not permit himself to be influenced by a wave of popular sentiment, and assuredly not by his own nephew's signature. He gave to the case the patient, remorseless examination which he gave to every case. He spent a sleepless night in trying to discover a reason for yielding to his humane instincts, but without success. As Judge Lindley remarked in his confidential report, the sole arguments in favour of Daniel were provocation and his previous high character, and these were no sort of an argument. The provocation was utterly inadequate, and the previous high character was quite too ludicrously beside the point. So once more the Marquis's humane instincts were routed, and he suffered horribly. V. On the Sunday morning, after the day on which the signal had printed the menu of Daniel Povey's supreme breakfast, and the exact length of the drop which the executioner had administered to him, Constance and Cyril stood together at the window of the large bedroom. The boy was in his best clothes, but Constance's garments gave no sign of the Sabbath. She wore a large apron over an old dress that was rather tight for her. She was pale and looked ill— "'Oh, mother!' Cyril exclaimed suddenly. "'Listen, I'm sure I can hear the band.' She checked him, with a soundless movement of her lips, and they both glanced anxiously at the silent bed, Cyril with a gesture of apology for having forgotten that he must make no noise. The strains of the band came from down King Street, in the direction of St. Luke's Church. The music appeared to linger a long time in the distance, and then it approached, growing louder, and the Bursley Town silver prize band passed under the window at the solemn pace of Handel's dead march. The effect of that requiem, heavy with its own inherent beauty, and with the vast weight of harrowing tradition, was to wring the tears from Constance's eyes. They fell on her aproned bosom, and she sank into a chair. And though the cheeks of the trumpeters were puffed out, and though the drummer had to protrude his stomach and arch his spine backwards, lest he should tumble over his drum, There was majesty in the passage of the band. The boom of the drum, desolating the interruptions of the melody, made sick the heart, but with a lofty grief, and the dirge seemed to be weaving a purple pall that covered every meanness. The bandsmen were not all in black, but they all wore crape on their sleeves, and their instruments were knotted with crape. They carried in their hats a black-edged card. Cyril held one of these cards in his hand. It ran thus. Sacred to the memory of Daniel Povey, a town councillor of this town, judicially murdered at eight o'clock in the morning, eighth of February, eighteen eighty eight. He was more sinned against than sinning. In the wake of the band came the aged rector, bareheaded and wearing a surplice over his overcoat. His thin white hair was disarranged by the breeze that played in the chilly sunshine. His hands were folded on a gilt-edged book. A curate, churchwardens, and sidesmen followed, and after these, tramping through the dark mud in a procession that had apparently no end, wound the unofficial male multitude, nearly all in mourning, and all save the more aristocratic carrying the memorial card in their hats. Loafers, women, and children had collected on the drying pavements, and a window just opposite Constance was ornamented with the entire family of the Landlord of the Sun Vaults. In the great bar of the faults, a barman was craning over the pitch-pine screen that secured privacy to drinkers. The procession continued without break, eternally rising over the verge of King Street Bank, and eternally vanishing round the corner into St. Luke's Square. At intervals it was punctuated by a clergyman, a nonconformist minister, a town-crier, a group of foremen, or a few rifle volunteers." The watching crowd grew as the procession lengthened. Then another band was heard, also playing the march from Saul. The first band had now reached the top of the square, and was scarcely audible from King Street. The reiterated glitter in the sun of memorial cards in hats gave the fanciful illusion of an impossible whitish snake that was straggling across the town. Three quarters of an hour elapsed before the tail of the snake came into view— and a rabble of unkempt boys closed in upon it, filling the street. I shall go to the drawing-room window, mother, said Cyril. She nodded. He crept out of the bedroom. St Luke's Square was a sea of hats and memorial cards. Most of the occupiers of the square had hung out flags at half-mast, and a flag at half-mast was flying over the town hall in the distance. Sightseers were at every window. The two bands had united at the top of the square, and behind them, on a North Staffordshire railway lorry, stood the white-clad rector and several black figures. The rector was speaking, but only those close to the lorry could hear his feeble, treble voice. Such was the massive protest of Bursley against what Bursley regarded as a callous injustice. The execution of Daniel Povey had most genuinely excited the indignation of the town— That execution was not only an injustice, it was an insult, a humiliating snub. And the worst was that the rest of the country had really discovered no sympathetic interest in the affair. Certain London papers, indeed, in commenting casually on the execution, had slurred the morals and manners of the five towns, professing to regard the district as notoriously beyond the realm of the Ten Commandments. This had helped to render furious the townsmen, This, as much as anything, had encouraged the spontaneous outburst of feeling which had culminated in a St. Luke's Square full of people with memorial cards in their hats. The demonstration had scarcely been organised. It had somehow organised itself, employing the places of worship and a few clubs as centres of gathering, and it proved an immense success. There were seven or eight thousand people in the square, and the pity was that England as a whole could not have had a glimpse of the spectacle. Since the execution of the elephant, nothing had so profoundly agitated Bursley. Constance, who left the bedroom momentarily for the drawing-room, reflected that the death and burial of Cyril's honoured grandfather, though a resounding event, had not caused one-tenth of the stir which she beheld. But then John Baines had killed nobody. The rector spoke too long, everyone felt that, but at length he finished. The bands performed the doxology— and the immense multitudes began to disperse by the eight streets that radiate from the square. At the same time one o'clock struck, and the public-houses opened with their customary, admirable promptitude. Respectable persons, of course, ignored the public-houses, and hastened homewards to a delayed dinner. But in a town of over thirty thousand souls there are sufficient dregs to fill all the public-houses on an occasion of ceremonial excitement." Constance saw the bar of the vaults crammed with individuals whose sense of decent fitness was imperfect. The barman and the landlord and the principal members of the landlord's family were hard put to it to quench that funereal thirst. Constance, as she ate a little meal in the bedroom, could not but witness the orgy. A bandsman with his silver instrument was prominent at the counter. At five minutes to three, the vault spewed forth a squirt of roisterers, who walked on the pavement as if on a tightrope. Among them was the bandsman, his silver instrument only half enveloped in its bag of green serge. He established an equilibrium in the gutter. It would not have mattered so seriously if he had not been a bandsman. The barman and the landlord pushed the ultimate sot by force into the street, and bolted the door till six o'clock, just as a policeman strolled along the first policeman of the day. It became known that similar scenes were enacting at the threshold of other inns, and the judicious were sad. 6. When the altercation between the policeman and the musician in the gutter was at its height, Samuel Povey became restless. But since he had scarcely stirred through the performances of the bands, it was probably not the cries of the drunkard that had aroused him. He had shown very little interest in the preliminaries of the great demonstration. The flame of his passion for the case of Daniel Povey seemed to have shot up on the day before the execution, and then to have expired. On that day he went to Stafford, in order, by permit of the prison governor, to see his cousin for the last time. His condition then was undoubtedly not far removed from monomania, "'Unhinged' was the conventional expression, which frequently rose in Constance's mind as a description of the mind of her husband, but she fought it down. She would not have it. It was too crude with its associations. She would only admit that the case had got on his mind. A startling proof of this was that he actually suggested taking Cyril with him to see the condemned man. He wished Cyril to see Daniel. He said gravely that he thought Cyril ought to see him. The proposal was monstrous, inexplicable, or explicable only by the assumption that his mind, while not unhinged, had temporarily lost its balance. Constance opposed an absolute negative, and Samuel, being in every way enfeebled, she overcame. As for Cyril, he was divided between fear and curiosity— On the whole, perhaps, Cyril regretted that he would not be able to say at school that he had had speech with the most celebrated killer of the age on the day before his execution. Samuel returned hysterical from Stafford. His account of the scene, which he gave in a very loud voice, was a most absurd and yet pathetic recital, obviously distorted by memory. When he came to the point of the entrance of Dick Povey, who was still at the hospital, and who had been specially driven to Stafford, and carried into the prison, he wept without restraint. His hysteria was painful in a very high degree. He went to bed, of his own accord, for his cough had improved again, and on the following day, the day of the execution, he remained in bed till the afternoon. In the evening the rector sent for him to the rectory, to discuss the proposed demonstration. On the next day, Saturday, he said he should not get up. Icy showers were sweeping the town, and his cough was worse after the evening visit to the rector. Constance had no apprehensions about him. The most dangerous part of the winter was over, and there was nothing now to force him into indiscretions. She said to herself calmly that he should stay in bed as long as he liked, that he could not have too much repose after the cruel fatigues, physical and spiritual, which he had suffered, His cough was short, but not as troublesome as in the past. His face flushed, dusky, and settled in gloom, and he was slightly feverish, with a quick pulse and quick breathing, the symptoms of a renewed cold. He passed a wakeful night, broken by brief dreams in which he talked. At dawn he had some hot food, asked what day it was, frowned, and seemed to doze off at once. At eleven o'clock he had refused food, and he had intermittently dozed during the progress of the demonstration and its orgiastic sequel. Constance had food ready for his waking, and she approached the bed and leant over him. The fever had increased somewhat, the breathing was more rapid, and his lips were covered with tiny purple pimples. He feebly shook his head with a disgusted air at her mention of food. It was this obstinate refusal of food which first alarmed her, A little uncomfortable suspicion shot up in her. "'Surely there was nothing the matter with him?' "'Something, impossible to say what, caused her to bend still lower and put her ear to his chest. She heard within that mysterious box a rapid succession of thin, dry, crackling sounds, sounds such as she would have produced by rubbing her hair between her fingers close to her ear. The crepitation ceased, then recommenced.' and she perceived that it coincided with the intake of his breath. He coughed. The sounds were intensified. A spasm of pain ran over his face, and he put his damp hand to his side. pain in my side,' he whispered with difficulty. Constance stepped into the drawing-room, where Cyril was sketching by the fire. "'Cyril,' she said, "'go across and ask Dr. Harrop to come round at once, and if he isn't in, then his new partner.' is it for father yes what's the matter now do as i say please said constance sharply adding i don't know what's the matter perhaps nothing but i'm not satisfied the venerable harrop pronounced the word pneumonia it was acute double pneumonia that samuel had got during the three worst months of the year He had escaped the fatal perils which await a man with a flat chest and a chronic cough, who ignores his condition and defies the weather. But a journey of five hundred yards to the rectory had been one journey too many. The rectory was so close to the shop that he had not troubled to wrap himself up as for an excursion to Stafford. He survived the crisis of the disease, and then died of toxemia, caused by a heart that would not do its duty by the blood." A casual death, scarce noticed in the reaction after the great febrile demonstration. Besides, Samuel Povey never could impose himself on the Burgesses. He lacked individuality. He was little. I have often laughed at Samuel Povey, but I liked and respected him. He was a very honest man. I have always been glad to think that, at the end of his life, destiny took hold of him, and displayed to the observant the vein of greatness which ran through every soul without exception. He embraced a cause, lost it, and died of it. End of chapter 5